welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Alrighty, if you guys want to make your way back to your seats. Welcome to Awaken, everybody. Uh, my name is Micah. If we haven't met, I'm one of the pastors here. Really glad that you're here. A um, couple things before I introduce our speaker, teacher, preacher this morning. Um, the first of which is, if you're new to Awaken, we're very glad you're here. We'd love to know that you were here. So um, in the seat pockets in front of you or online, there's a button you can press that says, I'm new. Let us know you were here. Somebody from our team will reach out and invite you to a beverage of your choice. Um, those, along with tithes and offerings, can go in the black boxes at each exit. And I'll just mention, um, we're rounding out the end of our sort of fiscal year. Danny was supposed to be here this week, but wasn't able to be here. So um, we're rounding out the end of our fiscal year. That ends June 30th. So we know that like a whole bunch of people have made their way to Awaken uh, since this pandemic situation. And a few folks have left Awaken. All that's good and, and well. We, we hold everybody here with open hands. And so I would just encourage you, if this is a new community for you and you're going to call it home, we'd love for you to get invested and uh, involved in our community all the way across the board. So um, that's just a, a, a friendly um, invitation, and, um, you know, we'll, uh, we'll keep rocking and rolling here. So a uh, couple things by way of community life we want to let you know of. April the 10th, that would be next week, uh, we have a Discover Awaken class. So some of you who are new, if you want to get to know Awaken a little more, that's a chance for you to do that ask some questions uh, about us and for us to get a chance to sort of share the story with you. That's after the second gathering, so, uh, and there is lunch provided, so if you could let us know that you're coming, that will help us plan for that. Um, Mandy is uh, organizing a toy drive, so toys will go to the Union Gospel Mission, I'm pretty sure. Um, details are in the Awaken Weekly, so that's a weekly email we send out you can subscribe to via the website. There is uh, one more Lenten gathering. We're rounding third base here on Lent. So this coming Wednesday, one more Lenten gathering at 6.30. And then uh, it's Holy Week, friends. So um, just to let you know, a couple things happening that week. Good Friday, we'll have a gathering at 6.30. Uh, and we will be celebrating communion for the first time since Lent began. I'm very excited about that. I don't know about you all. Um, but that'll be a sweet uh, night together. And that, if you've never been a part of a Good Friday gathering, um, we do what's called a tenebrae service, which is kind of a, a walk towards and with Jesus to the cross uh, and the seven last words of Jesus. So it's a very somber evening, um, but uh, very meaningful. So hope to see you there for that. And then Easter, 9.30 and 11. Um, and uh, uh, if you weren't here for our, our mask survey and didn't get the, the, the update on that, we're wearing masks through Easter um, to ensure the most number of people can come with uh, um, and feel comfortable doing so. And then the 24th, the following week, masks will be optional at Awaken. So excited to see some of your faces. That'll be lovely. And then last but not least, um, we are hosting a Ukrainian egg-making event. So I've never done this before, but I'm going to learn this week. Um, so there's two, two dates you should know. The 7th, this Thursday, there's a training for that. I need 10 table hosts. I have a few already, but if you're interested, essentially Grandma Camille, Danny's grandma, is going to teach us how to make Ukrainian eggs. It's going to be sweet. So that will happen on Thursday night, and then if you're there, uh, we'll host a table for the two seatings that we have on the 24th. So 1 and 4 o'clock, we're going to invite the neighborhood, and you're invited as well. So if you want to come or if you've got kids and uh, think that would be a fun thing to do, um, it'll be a free event, and then any donations will go to supporting uh, work in Ukraine and refugee work there. So. Um, super excited about that. 
Okay, friends, that's all I have. Um, I was going to throw it that way, but that's got sharp edges in its cardstock, so you're welcome. Um, I have the privilege of introducing a dear friend of mine, Lisa Adams, who's going to be with us this morning for our teaching and uh, our, our last Sunday in this series called 40. Lisa um, is a, a sweetheart, somebody who's involved with 40 Orchards, who uh, has led Bible studies with us, and um, somebody that I have just grown to love and appreciate, and I'm very, very glad that you get to be here uh, on this platform and teaching. So would you please welcome my friend Lisa. Uh, good morning. Thanks, Micah. Uh, it's, well, it's a little surreal to be up here, to be honest. Um, <laughs> I'm going to take it in just a second. Um, we are currently in this series about 40, uh, and we're doing it for the season of Lent, which makes sense because Lent is 40 days, kind of, with some flexibility depending on how you count. Um, and 40 is not just a number, it's something spiritual. It cues us into something. When you see it in the Bible, you kind of want to pay attention. As Micah described it, 40 is a journey of something, um, something dying and something being born, letting go of something to receive something. Maybe it's about death and resurrection. And over the past four weeks, you've covered different passages of this 40. Jesus in the wilderness for 40 days, Moses in the multiple 40s in his life, the spies that were sent into the promised land, spent some 40 days there scouting, Joshua in his 40 years of waiting, waiting to enter the promised land. I bet many of us have stories about 40 if we think about it. For me, it culminated in my 40th year of life. When I turned 40, I made a huge transition. I left a job at a church. When I left, I wasn't sure if I could trust myself or trust God ever again. I wasn't sure if I'd ever work in ministry again. I felt like a journey into the wilderness. And if I'm honest, I don't think I've left. I actually settled into the wilderness. I made friends with it. I made friends in it. There's a community that is full of life out in the wilderness. In case no one told you, there is wilderness inside of the promised land. Wilderness living, promised land living are not binary. It's not one or the other. The wilderness is hard and it's produced a lot of good. In October of 2015, when I was 41, I came to awaken for the first time. I sat right over there where Jeff is sitting. <laughs> and I wept through the whole service as I listened to Jenna teach on Paul's words about women in 1 Timothy. Now, it is not unusual for me to weep. <laughs> Just to be clear, that's not unusual. Um, what was unusual for me was seeing a woman preach. That was seven years ago. Seven is also kind of one of these mystical, fabulous numbers in the Bible. The number of days of creation, and if we look at the like the rhythm of Sabbath and the festivals, they all center on the number seven. My name Lisa is actually if it, in Hebrew, it's tied to Elizabeth, which is El Shiva. El is for Elohim or God, and Shiva is for seven or oath. So it could be translated like God is my oath. So in my seventh year, I'm here preaching at Awaken. 
and it's a pretty special moment for me. The passage we're going to look at this morning is a passage on the number seven. It's going to be about the story that we know mostly like David and Goliath. So I am going to invite Angie to come up and read our Bible passage this morning for us. And if you're able, I'd love for you to stand. And a champion went out from the camp of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a bronze javelin between his shoulders. Now the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his iron spearhead weighted 600 shekels, and a shield bearer went before him. Then he stood and cried out to the armies of Israel and said to them, Why have you come out to line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and you the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now David was the son of that Ephrathite of Bethlehem, Judah, whose name was Jesse and who had eight sons. And the man was old, advanced in years in the days of Saul, the three oldest sons of Jesse had gone to follow Saul to the battle. The names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab the firstborn, next to him Abinadab, and the third Shema. David was the youngest, and the three oldest followed Saul, but David occasionally went and returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. And the Philistine drew near and presented himself, Forty days, morning and evening. Let's pray. God, living presence, thank you for this morning and for all that it will contain. I pray that this time and space will be a place of safety, of curiosity, and of questions. Help us pay attention to the spirit and notice what you might have for us. Amen. Be seated. When I got this passage, um, my first instinct was try to get another passage. <laughs> uh, I wanted to find a different 40. Um, there are a lot of good ones to choose from. But I also know that sometimes, though not always, when I'm trying to avoid something, especially a Bible passage, there's an invitation to try to see something different to see something new, and to ask some different questions. One of the things that I've learned through my years of working at 40 Orchards is that studying scripture with a group of people helps me expand how I see. It's my favorite way to study the Bible. So I want to thank the two groups of friends that helped me study this passage before I started writing this sermon. 
a group of friends from 40 Orchards who I love to study with. Shout out to Cohort Talent. And there's a group of men who are incarcerated at Stillwater Prison who I get to do my clinical pastoral education with who help me study this passage. I'm grateful to all of them for helping me see new things and expand my perspective. Um, their insights have shaped much of this sermon. As a heads up, I want you to know I ask a lot of questions. Um, and there'll be a lot in the next 20 or so minutes. <laughs> There's gonna be little clusters of them. I don't want you to try to write them all down. I don't want you to shout out answers. I want you to listen for the question that feels like it's for you. Just listen for and pick the one that you want to wrestle with, the one that you want to talk about on the way home. I'm also going to do a little bit of translating of the Hebrew. One of the things that helps me study the Older Testament is to find the verbal root of Hebrew words. And that's because Hebrew is a verb-based language. Words can be ver like rooted in verbs. You've heard Micah do this, like last week when he talked about blessing being rooted in the word kneeling. That's because you kneel to receive a blessing. Another word that gets rooted in there is pond, which seems weird, but pond is what happens when a camel makes, like kneels, it makes a little shape of a pond. So you can see how things kind of get rooted together. Those rootings help us understand and see a little bit extra when we stop and look at them. So a little bit of context about like where and when we are in this passage. First Samuel begins with the story of Hannah. Hannah is Samuel's mom, and Samuel will be the one who actually anoints both David and Saul. And first Samuel ends with the death of Saul. First and second Samuel, which I will also sometimes just refer to as the book of Samuel, because it is a book, one guy. Uh, most of what we know about David comes from Chronicles, though. And that is actually true for both Jews and Christians. What's interesting, though, is that Samuel is actually the more complex story of David. And that matters because Samuel actually lets us in on wrestling about David's story. It asks us to write questions about ourselves, about our leadership, about our power, and about our failure. In 1 Samuel, we are in the promised land, or Israel. The kingdoms are still united. We are early in the story of the Israelites. And just to make sure we don't miss it, this 40 is not in the wilderness. It is actually in a place that is a fertile land. There are trees, there's a riverbed, there's valleys and hills. Each of the armies are on opposite sides of a hill with a valley in between them. In verse 1, the Philistines are said to be in Ephes This doesn't really mean anything to most of us, but if we do some translating, it gets interesting. Ephes can be called the place where you are verbally rooted in coming to an end or ceasing, becoming silent. This place can be called where the Philistines are becoming silent or coming to an end. How does it feel to be in a place of becoming silent or coming to an end? Why would the Philistines or any of us choose to settle there? In verse 2, Saul and the Israelites are gathered in the valley of Allah. 
A law is verbally rooted in being strong or strength, like that of a big oak tree. What's it like to be gathered in a valley of strength? What do you know about being strong? These are the kinds of questions that translating the Hebrew and examining the verbal roots can help us see. Our story begins in becoming silent and in the valley of strength. It is in this place that we encounter the number 40. For the rest of my time this morning, we're going to explore the characters of chapter 17. We have the Philistines, the Israelites, Goliath, David, and Saul. By looking at the 40 through the lens of each of these people, my hope is that it helps us see something new about the story, or maybe that it helps us expand how we think about the number 40, about the people, and perhaps about ourselves. Now, the Philistines and the Israelites have a really long history. We actually first see them in Genesis 21, in the story of Abraham. And then we continue to see them all throughout. <laughs> they battle with the Israelites over and over. They win some battles, they lose some battles. And a little spoiler alert, David is going to continue to have to fight the, the Philistines even after this moment with Goliath. Goliath doesn't end the story. The name Philistine comes from a Hebrew word, and it's Pelishti, which means immigrant. The Philistines, or immigrants, come from a land that is called Pelishteth, which means the land of sojourners. And both of those words get rooted in the same verbal root, palash, which means to roll or to wallow, like rolling in ashes or wallowing in dust like an act of mourning. What this suggests to us then is that being an immigrant or a sojourner is like an act of mourning. The Philistines, the immigrants who come from the land of sojourners, are gathered behind Goliath on the top of the hill. When we look at 40 days through the lens of the Philistines, what might it be like to day and night watch Goliath, your representative, approach and present himself while taunting the Israelites? What's it like when you're being represented or protected by someone who you may or may not agree with? What happens inside of you when twice a day you witness this practice of taunting from a place of grief or mourning? What might that do to you? Next, let's look at the Israelites. The Israelites have been fighting battles for a long time and figuring out their identity. They've been through famine, oppression, battles, covenants. They've remembered and they've forgotten. We are told in the story of Jacob that their name means one who wrestles with God and with man and is able. Quite often we see ourselves as the Israelites when we read the scripture. Like we are God's people. Unless the Israelites are making bad choices. In which case we think they're ridiculous and we would never do such a thing. For instance, grumbling about manna or building golden calves. In this passage, we are at a time when the Israelites have decided they don't want judges anymore. They want a king. Specifically, they say they want a king to rule us like all the nations. God tells Samuel to warn them that if you have a king, a king is going to take and take and take some more and take from everyone. 
the people are going to cry out because of the king, and God is not going to hear them. The people respond by saying, we will have a king rule over us so that we may be like all the nations, and our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. While we might think this request is kind of ridiculous, it might help us to remember that we have a lot of privilege living in a country with one of the world's greatest militaries. For these 40 days, Israel is forced to wrestle with having a king who is supposed to fight this battle, who they expect to fight their battles. But this king isn't. And for 40 days, no one else is either. When we consider these 40 days through the lens of the Israelites, can we see ourselves as the Israelites? Have you been in a place where you wanted someone to stand up for you, fight for your community? Maybe you didn't just want someone to do it, but you needed someone to do it. What's it like to live there? For both the Philistines and the Israelites, we've actually been talking about the men who are on the battlefield. While this story centers the masculine voice, it is not the only voice. There is a huge community of people that are deeply impacted by these 40 days. What's it like to be married to one of the people on the battlefield? What's it like to be a spouse, a child, a sibling? For today, perhaps it invites us to think about what it is like for anyone in the Ukraine or Russia who has loved ones fighting a war. The invasion was on February 24th, 38 days ago. What happens to communities and families after 40 days of war? And now we're on to Goliath. The book of Samuel has really crazy themes all over it. One theme you can follow is the use of body parts. There are heads and necks. <laughs> Actually, a lot of people lose their heads. Um, and hair, like there's crazy things to study. Um, another theme is to study how people see and how people hear. When we... When we look at 1 Samuel 17, what everyone sees is Goliath. We get a crazy amount of detail about Goliath for this story. We know his height, the amount of armor he's wearing, how much it weighs, what it's made of, what it looks like. The people can see and are focused on all the things that give Goliath a military advantage. In verses 4 and 51, Goliath is called the champion which when it's translated actually means the man in between. So it's not the champion that we think of, it's the man that's in between. Goliath's name means splendor, and it's verbally rooted in the word galah, which means to uncover, to reveal, to show oneself, or to be exiled. This might help us understand how splendor reveals something or uncovers something. Through the lens of Goliath, what might this champion, this man between, help reveal or uncover in 40 days? When we think about Goliath being exile, how might being exiled help reveal to us, or the Israelites, what we are unable to see? What of our failures revealed or uncovered for us? My wilderness journey that I talked about in the beginning could also be called an exile because it felt like one. 
I have to lose so much of what I knew and what I was certain of. I lost a lot of power when I left my job at the church. And I had grown to really like that power. This exile and failure was humiliating and painful. And it revealed to me everything that I had been trying to cover, and I had to face those fears and those doubts. I had to learn how to embrace them. This wasn't about conquering, it was about embracing. I had to learn how fear could be a good thing. That for me, fear is what helps me analyze, it helps me plan, and it helps me bring about good things into the world. I had to learn that I can understand fear, I can sit with fear, I can learn from it, and then I can move forward. Doubt is what helped me heal. Learning that doubt helps me ask questions and wrestle means that doubt is what helps me find my way in the wilderness. My fears and my doubts were not sin. They were gifts. Turning back to the passage for today, something else we might not notice about Goliath was in verse 7. He has a shield bearer. He's not alone. There is a person that goes in front of him holding a shield. What's it like to have someone carry a shield and go in front of you every day? What would it be like to be the person carrying the shield every morning and every evening in front of Goliath? What's it like to be the person carrying the shield when Goliath is struck by a single stone? Now let's look at David. David is the name that appears in the Bible, like second behind Jesus. Uh, so he's kind of a big deal. Uh, he's an archetype for humans, really of being able to rise above our biggest mistakes. It's not that David is so amazing, it's that David is so human. He's another one of the youngest sibling motifs that we see throughout scripture, like Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and Rachel. He wrote poetry and songs, tended sheep, he slayed some bears, giant. He became a king, and he committed murder and adultery. David's name means beloved. At this stage in the story, I imagine that David really does feel beloved. He's the youngest and most unlikely. He's been anointed by Samuel to be the next king. He's feeling really good about his shepherding skills. In chapter 16, he's been playing music for Saul, and Saul loves him greatly. David volunteers to slay Goliath and refuses Saul's armor to fight. Everyone else is terrified, but David is confident. Perhaps it's because, as my friend Dave pointed out, David is on fire for the Lord and has a profound faith that God is going to win this battle. But I am more cynical. <laughs> and I wonder if along with the faith that David is just coming in hot after all these affirmations and confirmations, right? Like, David is not actually the best warrior. He's never been on the battlefield. But maybe something to notice is that David actually believes he can win the battle. Any one of the Israelites could have done what David did. If God is going to win the battle, then anyone could have stepped up. If David is living into his name, then he is living like he is beloved. 
What might happen for us if we start from a place of being beloved? What might you do differently? David's experience of these 40 days is different than everyone else's. Before I really sat with this passage, I really thought he was going to be the center of the story. But he's not. David comes and goes over the 40 days. He leaves to go home and feed the sheep, comes back to check on his brothers. In chapter 17, David does a lot of hearing. Instead of seeing Goliath, David hears Goliath. How is, how is hearing something different than seeing something? For David, how might his coming and going over the 40 days actually helped him see and hear things differently? How might taking time away help us when we have to do something difficult? Something that also caught my attention about David is that we don't know who his mom is. We do know the line his father comes from in Ruth. In Ruth 4, we're told Boaz begot Obed, Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David. That means that David's great-grandmother is Ruth. I think it's important to look for the voices of women in our stories, even if we have to jump a couple of books to find it. Ruth was a Moabite and a sojourner. This is a part of David's history. By bringing in Ruth, we can ask, how might the story of Ruth impact who David is? How do great-grandmothers actually impact the trajectory of their families? Remembering that the name of the Philistines means immigrant from the land of sojourners, and thinking about the history of Ruth as a Moabite and a sojourner, we can wrestle with how we see and hear we, how we hear the voice of the sojourners and immigrants in the Bible. Or perhaps we can wrestle with how often we miss them. The last character I'm going to talk about is Saul. When we talk about David and Goliath, we often miss how Saul is impacted by these 40 days. We meet Saul just seven chapters earlier. In 1 Samuel chapter 9, Saul has lost his dad's she-donkeys. I'm not sure why the Bible is always talking about she-donkeys, but it happens a few times. Saul is not a shepherd. Saul is a donkey herder. The donkey herder becomes king. I like to imagine that God has a sense of humor, that God giggles. And for me, I, imagining, I, I just imagine that God is giggling when he decides that if God's people are going to act like donkeys, then they're going to get a donkey herder. And since Saul's she-donkeys are missing, he's not even that good of a donkey herder. <laughs> this is Israel's first king, right? Saul's name is Shaul, which means desired. Saul's dad is described as a mighty man of strength. First Samuel describes Saul as the tallest of the Israelites and says there is not a more handsome man than him in all of the children of Israel. But handsome, in verse 2 of chapter 9, is actually the word tov. Tov is a word which means good, excellent, valuable, prosperous. It is generative, and it is how God describes God's creation. 
Saul is the most tov person in all of the children of Israel. Saul sees himself differently. In 921, Saul describes himself as being the smallest or most unimportant tribe. And he's from the smallest and littlest and most insignificant family from that tribe. In chapter 10, verse 22, we learn that Saul is hiding in a pile of armor when Samuel goes to crown him king. The Lord actually calls him out of a hiding place. In verse 11, Saul and the Israelites are described as both dismayed and greatly afraid. Dismayed is hathath, which means broken, shattered, abolished, terrified. Greatly afraid in Hebrew is yarei moed. Yerei moed is the same language that is used when Jacob is getting ready to return to his brother Esau after stealing his blessing and running away. This is how the Israelites are described right before they are about to cross the Red Sea when they are trying to flee the Egyptians. They're all this kind of greatly afraid. What happens when the people and the leader are broken, shattered, and greatly afraid? These 40 days for Saul are a time when he's being asked to decide who he wants to be. These 40 days highlight Saul's power and leadership. Saul doesn't seem to ever see himself as tov or good. This 40 is not a rebirth for Saul. Every evening before everyone goes to bed, and every morning as everyone gets up, for 40 days, everyone is reminded that their king, who they thought was going to lead them into battle, isn't. For Saul, this 40 doesn't birth something good. Viewing these 40 days through the lens of Saul can be a reminder for us of what happens when what we believe about ourselves is more powerful than what is true about ourselves. What is true about who you are? How are you hiding? How does Saul's experience expand our understanding of 40? What do you do when 40 doesn't feel like new life, but instead feels like slow failure? And thinking about Saul and David and the meaning of their names, what is the difference between living as desired and living as beloved? Something that I learned while spending time with folks who are incarcerated is that it takes an incredible amount of work to believe and know that you are not your worst mistake. You may have done something awful, but it doesn't have to be the thing that defines you. It doesn't have to be who you are. We know this is true about David because we can quote that he is a man after God's own heart while we know that he has murdered someone. I mean, Jesus is in the line of David, so of course we believe that to be true. Moses kills someone, and after that he leads the Israelites out of Egypt. He's still Moses to us. But do we stop and see the good in Saul? Can we stop and remember that before all the power and all the mistakes, that Saul a donkey herder from the lowliest family in the smallest tribe was one of the most tov people in all of Israel. We all experience 40s, some days, some months, some years. And not every 40 is something. Sometimes 40 just gives us language to describe how long it takes to see something different or to hear something in a new way, to change for something inside of us to be composted and made into abundant life. And sometimes it's a failure that happens after 40. 
I hope that somewhere this morning, you found a question to wrestle with. Maybe you found it directly in the story of 40. Maybe you found it on the edges. Before I invite you to sit in silence with your questions, there's a practice that I found on TikTok. It's by Dreadful Bird. It's because he has dreads, not because he's sad. And I want you to do it with me. It's really short, but it helps me settle into my body before I sit with a question. So I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. Take a deep breath. Exhale that breath out. Take the tongue off the top of your mouth. Unclench your jaw. Relax your eyebrows. Drop your shoulders. Loosen your stomach and your torso. Let the tension move away from your body or dissolve. Take a moment to recognize that right now and right here, you are safe. You are breathing. You are loved. And now I want you to call to mind the question you want to sit with for this moment of silence. Friends, before I invite you to stand for a benediction, I want to just pause and name a moment. I don't know what kind of church you grew up in or if you grew up in a church, but the one I grew up in, um, answers were a premium, you know? It was like if you could boil it down to like what what were we selling every Sunday, it was certainty. It's like just give me the answer to the question. And then somehow like I feel better about my life or about God or about all kinds of things. And I don't know about you, but uh, it just didn't, it didn't like sync with reality and my life and what it means to be human. Um, I think this space where we really do get to wonder and ask, what would it have been like to be the shield bearer when Goliath gets struck with a stone? Like, can you imagine, like, that's a bad day. But we all have those kinds of days. Or what would, it have been, what would it have been like to be Saul? You know, this king who just couldn't find it in himself to walk out there in battle. Um, so I want to just name, um, like, this is life. And this is what we invite you to, to really wrestle with, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to live in this world? What does it mean to love God and love neighbor? What does it mean to find our own voice and to live in our own name? Um, and the good thing is you don't have to do it alone, right? We're a community of people. We want to do this together. Um, but this is normal. This is faith. We're called to faith, not certainty. Um, so we're going to keep walking in faith, believing what we believe about God because of Scripture, because of the history of people, the long line river of saints who have gone before us because of our own experience. Um, So let me invite you to stand for a benediction. And I would invite you this week to continue to follow whatever that question is, to sit with it, maybe even in quiet as you drive or before work or late at night when you're falling asleep. 
But know that the Lord blesses you and keeps you. The Lord lifts up his face to shine upon you and is gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance to you and give you peace. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The church said together, amen. Amen. Thanks, Lisa. Grace and peace, friends. Find us online at www.awakencommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash Awaken Community or on Twitter at Awaken Community. See you next time.